While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. good job i think we did a fine job i think we dirtied more dishes than we needed to. i think we dirtied a lot of dishes (laughs) do you find when you're making any food that you dirty more dishes than you need to oh yeah always like in retrospect i always i always look at the pile of dishes that i've made and there's gotta be i have to have done something wrong there has to be some inefficiency (laughs) in my process somewhere well and the problem too is that uh when i took that cooking class a couple weeks ago the woman running it had these little like bowls with trash bags in them that was like put all of your like detritus in here you know like if you're like peeling stuff or you're cutting stuff up and you've got stuff to throw away like just toss it in there and you'll get it later don't worry about it okay and so i feel like now i'm dirtying like three to four extra bowls every time i make a meal because i'm just like throwing onion pieces in one bowl because you don't have a detritus bowl well no i'm making detritus bowls i'm just using too many of them (laughs) Oh, so, okay, you just need to have one detritus bowl. I need a detritus bucket. That's what, that's what a trash can is for. <laughs> I need it on the countertop. Can't, just I'm not put it put next my, to the countertop. I'm not gonna, no. Why are you just throwing detritus everywhere willy-nilly? Not, just because you willy can't like nilly. think ahead enough. To <laughs> I'm putting it into some bowls that are set about willy-nilly. I don't understand your setup. Why why are you doing this to yourself? I don't know. I'm trying to be a better cook and it's making me a worse person. I think it's one of those things that you only get better with as you as you practice. Like I don't know, the first time Susanna and I try any new dish, it always ends up terrible. <laughs> yeah. Like even the first time we made like pancakes and bacon, like it all we didn't time it right and it all got burnt. Oh, timing's the worst. I don't know. Timing meals is the worst. Uh, welcome to Overdue. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cooking podcast about books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Uh, and though timing food is the worst, we have timed this podcast A-OK. And uh, here it is for you <laughs> right now. Every week, in case you're joining us for the first time, we choose a book that we've either been meaning to read or that has actually been sitting on our bookshelves for a while and we read it, well, one of us reads it, and then tells the other person about it. That's generally and, um, how it works. Yeah, and so this week it was Craig's turn to read, and Craig, what did you read? I read The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle. <laughs> Iggy. Iggy. Iggy, 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 as he will henceforth be called. Iggy Doyle the Word Man. So this, of course, is one of the Sherlock Holmes books. Yeah, what if I told you it wasn't? What if I was just like, no, with that other... The Hounds of the Baskervilles. It's a different <laughs> book. Uh, yes, this is the third Sherlock Holmes novel. Um, I don't. I wasn't really clear when I w- dove into this that there was such a big distinction between the four Sherlock Holmes novels that Doyle wrote and the like fifty some stories that also are part of the canon. 
What's the difference? I think they just came out differently because plenty of the stories at that time uh, were published in magazines. Uh, Doyle was born in like 1859, so you're looking at that late 19th century kind of literary magazine scene. I don't know if you were a part of that scene or not. No, I wasn't. I wasn't into that one. Oh. Those, those zines back in the I was into the, the literary zine scene before it was cool. Um, <laughs> What's like? Is there a distinction in length or in like format or I think in theme it's between the novels and the short stories? I don't. I don't know. This is my first Sherlock Holmes. That's what I'll, I'll tell you that much. Um, okay. I think that it is likely an issue of length. Um, Though this was not a very long book, so I would be intrigued to read some of the stories and see how short they are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also worth noting that this book came eight years after Arthur Arthur Iggy Doyle killed Sherlock Holmes, quote unquote. At the Wait, what? Yeah, at the end of the story, the final problem, which was published, I think, in like eighteen ninety four, eighteen ninety five. It's the scene, uh, well, it is a scene where Sherlock Holmes and his nemesis, Moriarty, plummet to their supposed doom. Okay. So is this like a prequel to that? or Yes. This is, is actually, it, or is it just that like if he had called it the next to last problem, it wouldn't have been as catchy a title? <laughs> <laughs> it's the final fantasy of Conan Doyle <laughs> stories. Uh, I think he was he was kind of tired of uh, Sherlock Holmes at the time. He'd been studying ophthalmology <laughs> and okay. wanted to go on being an ophthalmologist. And in 1891, Doyle wrote to his mother, I think of slaying Holmes and winding him up for good and all. He takes my mind from better things. And his mom was like, you can't do that. <laughs> the actual quote from his mom is, you won't, you can't, you mustn't. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, so he killed him at the end of Final Problem. And then he came back with the Hound of the Baskervilles uh, after public outcry, I guess. Um, <laughs> but that's, this story is set before that uh, incident where Holmes died. But then a couple years later, Holmes reappeared for good and Doyle revealed that he had faked his own death. Okay, of course um, he did. So, you know, it's all, I mean, it all fits into the canon, which is something i want to talk about but do you is there something you want to talk about uh arthur doyle first well because it seems like he had many interests it seems like he kind of <laughs> as i just said he was an ophthalmologist place. in case like he wrote realize. a lot of books he was an ophthalmologist what was um, what was what that other it? set of books that he wrote we were talking about this oh earlier. okay so yeah he's he's this is a second lesser known set of books or at least i had never heard of them before like 20 minutes ago <laughs> but apparently sir arthur iggy doyle also wrote a series of books about professor george edward challenger Wait. better known as professor challenger what uh professor challenger why is yeah. he not more popular than sherlock holmes because he has a way better name <laughs> he sounds like kind of a jerk like okay i'm gonna read for from the Wikipedia page about Professor Challenger. Okay. Like, even Wikipedia seems not to know what to do with him because most of the article is just a straight up description of him from one of Doyle's books. Okay, great. Um, this is a character in a book called The Lost World, which is Challenger's first appearance, I guess. By Michael Crichton. Um, 
no, no, that's a that's a later spiritual sequel. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so this is the character describing Professor Challenger. Um, his appearance made me gasp. I was prepared for something strange, but not for so overpowering a personality as this. It was his size which took one's breath away, his size and his imposing presence. His head was enormous, the largest I have ever seen upon a human being. <laughs> I'm sure that his top hat, had I ventured to don it, would have slipped over me entirely and rested on my shoulders. <laughs> he had the face and beard, which I associate with an Assyrian bull, the former florid, the latter so black as almost to have a suspicion of blue, spade-shaped and rippling down over his chest. What? The hair was peculiar, plastered down in front in a long curving wisp over his massive forehead what the eyes were blue gray under great black tufts very clear very critical and very masterful a huge spread of the shoulders and a chest like a barrel were the other parts of him which appeared above the table save for two enormous hands covered with long black hair this and a bellowing roaring rumbling voice made up my first impression of the notorious professor challenger so he basically is haggard <laughs> Hagrid the not so horrible. Yeah, like Yeah. What why is does is there anything more about what this character did? Like what was his was he a like a what was he a professor of? He's I mean, he sort of was an explorer and scientist. Okay. And um I guess there were there were three um novels and two short stories about Challenger by Doyle. Um the Lost World, which describes an expedition to a plateau in South America where prehistoric creatures, including dinosaurs, still survive. Mm -hmm. So I guess it is a little closer to the Lost World than, than we were thinking. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> like the actual uh, Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Poison Belt, in which the Earth passes through a cloud of poisonous ether, and The Land of Mist, a story of the supernatural. Great. I want to read so, these books. Yeah, sounds like Professor Challenger had a lot of adventures. That sounds great. But he sounds he sounds a little like I don't know if like laconic is a word you would use for Sherlock Holmes or like maybe he's like he's a little cleaner and more well to do than Professor Challenger. Professor Challenger just sounds nuts. Well, I will tell I mean, not in this story, not in Hound of the Baskervilles, but there are plenty of stories that explore uh Holmes's drug use. So he's got problems. Okay. But sure. He's, yeah, but, but he's not like going on a ride through a green sun or whatever the he's, heck. He's yeah, just... he's not like a Norse god, <laughs> like <laughs> Professor Challenger. Uh, st sticking with Doyle, there's another thing that I wanted to bring up. Well, first, like every uh, British Isle author or playwright that I read, apparently he was a oh, he was a keen cricketer. <laughs> So everyone, okay. uh, that, I just find that neat because I was like, oh, uh, yep, just like Samuel Beckett. They're all, they're all cricketers. Um, another interesting thing about Arthur Conan Doyle that I think kind of relates to Holmes in a way is that he's kind of famous for two cases uh, in which he became an advocate of justice. And kind of personally, Justice. personally investigated two closed cases, uh, and one in 1906 was this man who has had been jailed for suspectedly uh, mutilating animals uh, and penning threatening letters. But some of those happened after the guy had already been tossed in jail, so 
Doyle was like, um, that's wrong. And he helped finance an investigation to clear his name. And this actually set up the Court of Criminal Appeal in 1907 to kind of prevent this type of thing from happening again. Uh, and he did the same for another man in 1928, uh, a guy that was convicted of bludgeoning an 82-year-old woman. You know, um, like you do. <laughs> like you do. And, <laughs> and uh, Doyle was found the inconsistencies in the prosecution uh, curious and decided to pay for the investigation to clear this guy's name. And I, I think it kind of relates to Holmes in that there's a great sense of process and a sense of due process and uh, making sure but you a have... lack, But like a lack of credentials. <laughs> but uh, yeah, sort of a lack of credentials, <laughs> but still having a strong moral compass and a strong sure. sense of uh, thoroughness, I suppose. Okay. I can get down with his brand of vigilante uh, justice. Uh, all right, and I guess we should get to the book at some point. But you brought up another thing pre-show that we no. I just, I just it, apparently after um, after his wife and one of his sons and a couple of brothers, like he had a lot of people in his life die in kind of a relatively short space of time in the early 1900s. Okay, and it fueled his interest in the supernatural, I guess. And so he was a member of something called the Ghost Club. Um, how can I join? Who is in it? Is pr- pretty much just what it sounds like. It's still around. Okay. It's it's a UK thing, I think, mostly. But uh, yeah, they, they investigate uh, ghosts and supernatural occurrences, um, trying to find, you know, get to the truth of them. And I think <laughs> it's implied that they really hope that the truth is that it's is ghosts. <laughs> at all the evidence and we really hope it's ghosts once we once we look at everything <laughs> yeah like charles dickens was in the ghost club um arthur conan doyle's in the ghost club was harry houdini in the ghost club um, i, I know he had a lot of problems with spiritual charlatans so maybe he wouldn't have been in the ghost i don't club. know that he was in the ghost club he probably would have like interrupted one of their meetings and then done some magic tricks and then ran away he would have david bland yeah. all over them <laughs> All right, should we talk about this book? Yeah, let's actually get to the book. But Arthur Conan Doyle sounds like a boss. I, like I, he sounds, <laughs> he sounds like he did a lot of cool stuff. I want to read books about him, uh, the adventures of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, <laughs> by Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> um, so it's interesting. We're we're just talking about supernatural stuff right now because uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles, the titular Hound, as it were, is this apparently supernatural creature that lives in these moors in Devonshire, England, or Devonshire, I suppose. I don't know. I don't know. How, how, are you British? How do you say that? I'm not British, so no. So you don't know? All right. We'll just say like Devonshire. Devonshire, yeah. Devonshire. Or Devonshire or something. Devon, Devonshire. Um, so this <laughs> so this hound... Pronunciation is something that we struggle with. <laughs> We're never going to get better at it. Let's, you need to get an assistant yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, let's get an assistant. Let's get a Watson. Get an intern. Um, so just the backstory is at the be- at the opening of this book, a character, Charles Baskerville, has died on the moors in Devonshire, apparently frightened to death or attacked by this hound. Okay. okay. And the hound is part of the Baskerville family legend because of their older relative, Hugo, who is apparently a huge jerk 
<laughs> he wanted to marry this girl or sleep with her. I don't know what. And she didn't want to, so she ran Whatever. out into the moors, and he apparently sold his soul to the devil to get her back. And then when his party found him out on the moors, uh, he and the girl were dead, and there was a hellhound, like, hanging out, like, who had chewed out his throat. So that's yeah, the I am I am so tired of going to these <laughs> weddings where all they talk about is, oh, sell, sold your soul this, hellhound that. Come on, guys. It's a cliche. <laughs> but so this is the story that is brought to Sherlock Holmes's attention by one Dr. Mortimer in London. And the, the reason that Dr. Mortimer is worried is that uh, the heir to the Baskerville estate, Sir Henry Baskerville, is on his way home from Canada, of all places. <laughs> and he is worried that Henry might be in danger of this hound or of whoever is in charge of this hound or whatnot. And Holmes is kind of dubious that this dog, this giant dog is supernatural. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any questions so far? No, not so far. All right. You're talking. I do kind of, I, this has been adapted a bunch of times as have many of the, Oh yes. yes, yes home yes, yes, stories. Yes. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Okay. But as far as the synopsis at this point, no, it's pr- pretty straightforward. Great. Dude thinks there's a ghost dog. Sherlock Holmes is like, really? Yes. So and that's where we are. So the big thing, uh, moving forward, I kind of, I don't want to go into the full, like how this mystery unravels. Cause I, I was actually pretty intrigued throughout the entire book. Uh, I found it very successful in that regard. So yeah. I don't want to, sp- I, I mean, so we, one we, instance, we don't shy away yeah. from spoiling specific story beats when <laughs> necessary, but it is not always necessary. I hate you so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's worth noting that the book is from told from Watson's point of view, uh, which I think is actually integral to the success of Holmes because Holmes is such a like mad genius and you're not supposed to know how he's kind of coming to his conclusions that it yeah, helps. And you, you, yeah. You wouldn't want to read something done from Holmes perspective either because it would all be so like self-satisfied. And... <laughs> yeah, it really would. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a part really late in the book where Holmes is kind of, he's getting ready to solve the mystery and he's going to catch the the person behind it all and there's actually a passage where Watson talks about that like Holmes doesn't tell it's very frustrating to work with Holmes because he he'll set you up on a scheme but he won't tell you what you're doing until it's like supposed to happen right now um and partially this is him being self-satisfied and partially it's him just kind of protecting his own plans and like making sure mm-hmm. they don't go awry uh but I think the kind of bewilderment and awe that Watson feels for Holmes at all times is kind of important to to just the book succeeding. Um, so after a little brief stint in London where they meet Sir Henry and they decide to go to the Devonshire Moors where the estate is, uh, Holmes decides to stay in London and sends Watson on his own. And Watson's like, what do you, what do you, no, why? <laughs> Holmes is like, I just got, I got better stuff to do. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Send me letters. It'll be great. Uh, so Watson's there all on his own, and he meets this whole cast of characters. Like he meets uh, the butler of the Baskervilles, Barrymore, and his wife. He meets this uh, butterfly collector named Stapleton and Stapleton's sister, who Sir Henry has a thing for. They, there's this escaped convict living out on the moors, and no one knows where he is, so he's out you know, potentially causing trouble. 
there's this woman who asked for the dead Baskerville uh, Lord's help, and they have to talk to her about you know her crazy marriage troubles. Um, so quickly within within maybe three chapters of Watson being at the Moors, he's met a whole host of potential people, uh, potential murderers or potential you know suspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think was pretty interesting because it takes a little while. Like, it does a pretty good job of every time you meet a new person, it's like, oh yeah, they have a reason for being shady. Like, yeah, Barrymore might have a way to, you know, inherit some of the estate, or maybe it was left to him in someone's will, so he's going to kill off everyone. Stapleton's a weird dude who has a history that no one's really sure of because he worked at some school and then. A bunch of kids got sick and his school fell apart, so now he's living in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> uh, this, you know, woman who shadily asked for uh, Sir Charles's help and wrote him a letter, and then uh, the letter that she wrote to him is the meeting, like it was like, come meet me at this on this path, and that was where Sir Charles died, and she didn't show up, so like she's suspicious, uh, and it all kind of unfolds. In such a way as Watson's figuring it out and you know writing back to Holmes his uh, his observations on all of these characters, and then kind of halfway through the book, it becomes another epistolary novel. Watson's like, "Hey, why don't I just?" He's talking to the reader directly. He's like, "Why don't I just put my letters here? I'll just give you the <laughs> letters I wrote to Holmes." And then about four chapters later, he's like, "You know what? Those aren't as useful. I'm just going to start telling you again. Let me just write it down." And then Holmes shows up, of course, and, and things get a little crazy. I don't know what else to tell you next. Where should we go? Like, okay, tell me from this what sense you get of Watson. Because I, f- I feel like mm. the relationship between him and Holmes is like one of the integral like building blocks of the, of the, I guess, the universe. But um, I don't know. I feel like his depiction can range from him being just kind of an idiot almost <laughs> to um, to him just being like kind of nice but ineffectual. I don't know. Like I I find myself wishing, especially if you if you've watched the like the newer like the Benedict Cumberbatch uh, Martin Freeman yes. BBC Sherlock series. I find myself wanting Watson to be like better at some stuff. Like mm. he ends up being the humanizing element that like Holmes needs, but I, I also want him to be competent in other things. Cause otherwise he just ends up being like the Xander of the Sherlock Holmes universe. Well, and there are a couple times in that BBC adaptation where he definitely is like the damsel in distress where yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, Watson's in trouble. Gotta go save him. Sometimes to comedic. Effects, yeah. Like. Yeah. I w- this is definitely not that it's kind of interesting that we spend whole chapters. I found just with Watson um, and you're looking at these people without Holmes there to kind of like guide your eye. You don't know why anything's important just yet, and neither does Watson. But this is a pretty long ways into their relationship together. Like there's, I don't, uh, what's the passage? I have it bookmarked, but the quote I wrote down was just Watson saying, I have not lived for years with Sherlock Holmes for nothing. Like he's figuring some stuff out. <laughs> and it's funny because along the, the throughout the book Holmes would be like oh yeah good job way to notice that like you yeah you've been learning from me great job old sport 
I guess when your franchise has been going on for so long that you kill your character and then bring him back. <laughs> yes, that is true. Like, you've got some established <laughs> tropes going. Yeah. So, you know, in this one, Watson is... He's never going to make that final leap. He's never going to notice that thing that no one saw. Um, and the odd thing in this one is that because Holmes is absent for so long, it seems like he is almost superhuman in the amount of stuff that he can get done. Like, he's just got all these people he's talking to, and, like, he's sending telegrams. He's got a boy, like, working for him who comes out and delivers mail to him in the moors. Like, it doesn't make any sense, and Watson has no idea that any of this is going on. Um, but other than that, I would I would say maybe he borders on nice but ineffectual, um, but doesn't really... He's not bumbling. He's not useless. He's not he's useless. Not, he's not Sherlock. And there are a couple times where Sherlock... It's like, Watson, are you armed? And it seems like, even though Sherlock can handle himself, he does appreciate having the muscle around with him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so, okay. Um, since you don't want to you don't want to talk anymore about the specific mystery because you don't want to... I would like to avoid it, it, but I guess we can, we can yeah. go into it. If well, we I mean, we, we don't have to. I just, I just wanted to... Like, this, is, this stuff has been adapted, like, so many times. Yes. It's, I mean, Sherlock Holmes has been around for, what, like, 150 years or something? He's something been around like for a while. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, why do these, why do you think these characters stick with us? Why do you think they are still making brand new adaptations of this? Like, where, I don't know. Like, what, what do you think people see in these characters that makes them say, oh, hey, I can... I can bring them to life again and do something that other people, you know, haven't done yet. Well, and it's something that is present in both the movies and the recent television adaptations of Holmes. And I found it very easy to just start reading this without, uh, start reading the book and like Holmes is there on the page, not unlike the versions that I've seen him, uh, on screen. Like it just kind of fit into where my brain had him. He's charismatic. He's kind of funny. He at one point, uh, Watson is like he's smoking a cigarette and he drops it on the ground, and then he asks Holmes later like how he knew that Watson was sneaking up on him, and Holmes is like, "Well, you need to get a better tobaccoist because I recognize your cigarettes." Like it's like he makes fun of him for kind of trivial things that fill in his. Uh, his being extremely observant as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have these, even in stories that aren't about Sherlock Holmes, like your, your crime procedurals on TV or whatever, you have these characters that are able to take logical leaps that the audience isn't. Um, And then looking back on them, they're like, Oh yeah, that's, Oh, that's totally what it was. And you, so you need those characters, but I think what helps is that you have Watson as the kind of distancing effect is the person who's there to tell you how impressive it is, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, this is all from like Watson being like, wow, that was, I can't believe he figured that out. Uh, and I think with this story in particular, one of the reasons that the mystery was so successful throughout the whole book is the question of whether or not this dog is real kind of goes on throughout the entire book until the very end. Uh, so there's like this second. There is a definitive answer at the end. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Okay. And I, I'll I'll tell you there 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 is a dog. There is a dog. You hear that dog throughout the entire book, and it's definitely a dog because everyone's like, "Yo, that that dog so that dog sound was scary." Did you? I mean, did you just ruin the mystery, or is there still something more to be discovered? No, there's more stuff to be discovered. 
Um, by ghosts, by I guess. In the ghost I club. Why am I a ghost? <laughs> I'm the ghost of Sherlock Holmes. Um, but the f- whether or not you know the ghost is real, the the dog is real, <laughs> the ghost is real, uh, is like a huge mystery, um, and kind of plays along. It draws out like the any of the suspicions you have about these specific characters. Then you have to align them with. But wait, if the dog is real, what could they be doing, or is how could they be setting up uh, this dog to pretend to be real or whatever it is? Um, so it's kind of a dual layer mystery that I think is what makes this story ripe for adaptation. Like in the, mo- I think in the the TV one, it wasn't the best episode of the BBC series, but I still think that they did a decent job of kind of having multiple potential versions of what was happening. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not an expert on Sherlock Holmes. I wish no, I were. That's that's fine. No, it's just it's just cool to me how like I don't know, these characters are very much Arthur Conan Doyle's, but they've been like written about and adapted by so many different you know, people and franchises and like across so many different mediums too. It's I don't know. He's he's almost one of those characters who has become like a part of folklore or something. He's kind of a character who a lot of people feel a sense of ownership about, if that makes sense. Holmes. Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like you'd, you'd make a story about Sherlock Holmes. Like you'd make a story about, I don't know, like Paul Bunyan or something yeah, he, like that. Not not as hokey as that, but it's like it's it's something that originated at a certain point, but also kind of belongs to everybody yeah he's some he's some he's somewhere between like a myth and like a comic book character Mm -hmm. in that he is very malleable he's you have a couple different things he needs to be smart he needs to be somewhat abrasive but ultimately charismatic and he needs to operate outside the lines like once you have those three things you can kind of do whatever you want with Sherlock Holmes in the same way that yeah. like Superman needs to do this and he needs, he needs to have these powers. And after that you put the costume on him and he's Superman. Yeah. The, yeah. The comic book comparison is actually much better than my stupid one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you look at a character like Batman, like yeah. he also has a clear creator and like a point of, of origin and you've got these certain elements that remain pretty much the same across his all of his incarnations. Like his parents died. He has a code to his vigilanteism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like so many different creators have done so many different Batmans and they're or Batman, I guess. Batman. And, and yeah, like there's so many different valid ways to portray the character at this point that it's really I don't know. It's just it's really it's really cool. Like you can you can choose to dive into one of a bunch of different rabbit holes and like I don't know. Like it's all it's all Batman, but it still is Batman. Yes, you can you can find something that like speaks to you more than than some other. Well, stuff. and it all it all rolls into the issue of canon, right? Of like, what are the? It's the same thing that people have with like the Star Wars layers of fiction, and like, is it? Are you talking about side stories of Holmes? Are you talking about, you know, stories of him written by other people? Do they count? Is it the same character or not? And I kind of want to bring this up, even though it's it's only 
tangenti- tangentially related. There's something <laughs> called the game or the Sherlockian game. You just lost the game. I did just lose the game. Oh, I hate it. We um, all just lost it. <laughs> it is apparently, I don't I think it's been going on since at least like the 50s, maybe earlier than that. A bunch of nerds in Britain and New York invented this thing called the game where you sit around and debate how things fit into the canon, such as the location of Watson's war wound, which has kind of been in different spots in different stories. So you Mm -hmm. sit around and you try to come up with reasons why it might be in different places so that all the canon agrees. (laughs) It's called the game. See, that is dumb. Like, just let... Just let it be malleable. Like, you don't have to make it all make sense for it to be fun. Like, that's a huge thing in Star Trek, too, is... Yeah, and and it got so bad in Star Trek that when you get to the last TV series, which is Enterprise, which is, you know, supposedly a prequel to, like, the original series. It's a prequel to everything that exists in the franchise, basically. Yeah. Those... That shows writers like bent over backwards to like explain differences in makeup and like why certain races existed later, but they didn't (laughs) exist like in the original series. And it's like, it ties your hands. If you feel like you have to be beholden to that all the time. Yeah. Like it's really, it's too bad that a show or like a, a works biggest fans are the ones who are the most susceptible to doing that kind of thing. Like, like by liking it so much, they can almost cripple it. Well, and that's what makes people so down on nerds sometimes. You know? Like, just comic book nerds and all sorts of nerds, and it's like, there has to be this thing or else it's not the thing I love, and now I hate it. That's, that is nerddom for the most part. Yeah, like it it's the same thing with like if you really like your Android phone or something. Like <laughs> or, or the Mac versus PC thing is the classic yes, example. Yes, yes. Like it's not it's not enough that you like it and that you're comfortable with it and that it lets you do what you want to do, but other people also should like it and if other people don't like the thing that you like, then they're terrible and they need to be put in their place. <laughs> Actually, I read I read once if you want to make a nerd mad, you you don't you shouldn't hate what they like. You should like what they like, but you should do it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> Which I think is I think pretty on, pretty much on the nose. <laughs> well, I was gonna say like, what is it? Is it George R. R. Martin who I know I've read articles where like he's gotten he's he like changed a horse's gender between books and people got all mad. And he's employed a dude to, like, keep him straight in the canon between the books that he writes 10 years apart. And he doesn't care. He's just raking yeah. in cash. I think that's that's what gets at the core of some of these these problems is that I think some of these super fans see these small inconsistencies and they take it as some sign that the author of the work or the people who are, like, running it don't care or they, like... I don't know, or they're just changing stuff to suit whatever their needs are, and there's like a lack of attention to detail or something there that that is indicative of some deeper flaw on their part, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, because that dude wrote that thing to finish it. That's why it's not perfect, <laughs> but you love it. You're so mad about it, and that's because you love it. 
I don't know why we started hating on nerds for a second. No, it's not even hating on nerds. It's just trying to understand fandoms. Like, fandoms are, yeah. they can be great, but they can also be really toxic. Yes, 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 yes. I read a lot of, I read a lot of baseball uh, writing, and the Phillies are not good right now. <laughs> so there's a lot of angry baseball nerds that write about the <laughs> Phillies. Uh, and they do so with a lot of data behind their arguments. Um, and lots of, you know, to mix metaphors, lots of Monday morning quarterbacking, um, because they have the, they have the luxury of doing that as it were, you know, Mm -hmm. um, we have the luxury of sitting around for the next decades to a hundred years and more of debating why Holmes did this in one book and later said it was a different way. But Arthur Conan Doyle was just trying to make some cash writing good stories in between being an <laughs> ophthalmologist and advocate for right. public justice and some sort of ghost hunter. <laughs> and a ghost hunter. <laughs> well, don't forget Professor Challenger. Oh, God. I love that. Oh, man, I was... Can you imagine that like oh, crossover man. book? Oh, man. Sherlock Holmes meets Professor Challenger. The, su- the event of the summer. Oh, the crossover <laughs> like... event of the summer. Oh, man. It'd be like the Avengers. Well, that's like that's like why didn't they just didn't DC do that recently? They just like rebooted all their books. They were just like, screw it, we're tired of of caring. Yeah, but I I, I think that a lot of those efforts end up eventually bowing to fan demand and like yeah yeah it's explains how it ties into canon or something weird. Who would play Professor Challenge? Okay, if <laughs> if season three of Sherlock comes out. And Professor Challenger is there. Who plays him? I'm thinking John Rhys Davies. John Rhys Davies is he that young? Oh no, I don't I know that <laughs> Professor Challenger is I got, young. I got mixed. I got mixed up. I thought you meant Jonathan Rhys Myers. No, 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 no. Not no. the guy from the Tudors. No. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean sexy Gimli. Professor Challenger. No. <laughs> yes. Okay. I'm down with that. I could I could get it behind Jonathan Reese Davis. Either him or whoever played Hagrid. Let me look that up because <laughs> I'm sure I'm being. Is that guy still alive? Those movies happened like they are over like three years ago. He's still he's still around. Here, fill time while I look up who played Hagrid. Oh, okay. The I, I want to talk about the book real quick. You know that okay. book that well, we're talking still, about. Whatever. Um. Um. Robbie <sighs> Coltrane. <laughs> okay. Was Hagrid great? So either him or John Rhys. All right, I can get behind that. A, a bearded guy from a fantasy movie can play yeah. Professor Challenger just fine. I would, though, I would love to see like Robert De Niro play Professor Challenger. <laughs> he wouldn't be above that. Um, he would bring something to the some role, gravitas to the role. Yeah. Um, so, in what I what I really enjoyed throughout *Hound of the Baskervilles* is that. I would love to kind of see how this plays out in other Holmes novels and stories, but there is that kind of random attention to detail that happens throughout the book where very early on in the book, Sir Henry Baskerville's boot goes missing and he's like, why did someone stole my boot? I just bought it and I sent it out for cleaning and Holmes is like, why did you do that? You just bought it. He's like, it didn't look good enough. So I sent it out for cleaning and then it comes back and then his other boot goes away, and you don't find out about the boots until the end of the book. But they make a big, they make they talk about it for like a chapter, which is guys missing boots. And then later on in the book, there's a letter that comes in, and it's 
it's not written by hand. It's cut out like in serial killer letters. And you don't find out how that <laughs> happened until the end of the book either. This book was written, Down of the Bastard Mills was written in 1902. I, I did not know that someone had come up with the like, make a letter, but don't out show of, your penmanship. Yeah, that out of early. Like letters from Tiger Beat or whatever. Yeah, I think my first frame of reference for that is one of the, I think the Val Kilmer Batman movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it was not invented for the Valkyrie. No, clearly, it was, I'm going to throw that out. Clearly, there. it was invented before that. But when Jim Carrey played the Riddler to great effect in Batman Forever, that was one of the first times I remember seeing someone construct a letter <laughs> out of magazine clippings. Okay. Inviting- well, I mean, I guess that, I guess that would have been a bigger occupation back when, like, the only way. Like the main way that people corresponded over distance was written letters, yes. and like I re- I remember even in like Jekyll and Hyde there is a section where they had to like compare the penmanship between a couple different letters, and that was like that's like major evidence when you're investigating. Penmanship stuff, is so. huge in this book, yeah. In terms of, uh, you know, like you hold a letter in your hand and you like shove it in someone's face, and you're like, you wrote this. <laughs> tell me, tell me why you wrote this. <laughs> like that happens in this book. There's another part where, like, like why this serial killer letter happens. Like, at the end, you realize that the character did that not because they were necessarily uh, an evildoer, but because they didn't want to get caught potentially helping someone. Um, sure. And there's also a whole series of telegrams that get sent in this book that, like, obscure where Holmes is at any given time. It's very elaborate. I don't know if you could do something like that today where like you could set because it's way easier to find where someone is now. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose like you couldn't have it where like Holmes tweeted something somewhere to say he was somewhere else. Why would Holmes have a Twitter? I don't, I don't know. What could he fit into 140 characters? (laughs) Uh, anyway, it would be Watson who would have, yeah, Watson would have the Twitter. Let's be be real. Let's be real. Uh, But that actually, not knowing anything really about the about the books going into it, um, and kind of going working backwards from popular adaptations today, they do reference a couple times in this book how popular Holmes has become and how Watson has been writing about him. Um, Okay, so the the in the world. Of Sherlock Holmes, the Sherlock Holmes books and short stories have been published in some format. Yes, if not if not the short stories, but Watson has been writing about him in magazines or and it is ostensibly nonfiction, you know. Um, and so that when like Watson shows up somewhere, people are like, "Oh, Doctor Watson, is Sherlock Holmes coming?" Like that. Like, <laughs> they they are kind of they are a buddy cop film, and everyone knows it, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, the the public really responded to this character because they wouldn't let him kill him. Like his own mother wouldn't <laughs> let him kill Sherlock Holmes. Like, <laughs> I, think, I think you've achieved a certain level of success. I when think that that's kind awesome. Of thing starts to happen. I think yeah. that's great. Uh, but yeah, I really liked. I really liked the book. I it it did a really the each chapter was really well contained to different segments of the story, like dealing with one character at a time. There's like the second chapter is just called the problem. And it's just when Holmes finds out what needs to be solved, you know, 
he finds out that there is a problem. Yeah, it's kind of great. <laughs> <laughs> if you were going to pick another book or short story to read about Holmes from here, do you know which one it would be? I would. I might start with. Uh, I don't know if I would start with the final problem because um, I wouldn't want to start right where Doyle kind of kills him off. Sure. But I would want to know. I think it. I don't think it's the sign of the four. I think it's the collection of stories where Moriarty first arrives. Is probably where I okay. would start. So you wouldn't go all the way back to like study in Scarlet, which I think is the first one. No, I, I would. Lo- I would like to see what Moriarty's up to because I feel there's okay. there's references in this book where uh, Holmes seems like super into how complicated this crime is. Let me see if I can find out the. I can find the quote about it. Like he's super excited about. Well, he likes a challenge, right? He, that's the yeah. that's the idea. Um, what does he say? Uh, he's like, I shall su- I shall soon be in the position of being able to put into a single connected narrative one of the most singular and sensational crimes of modern times. Students of criminology will remember the analogous incidents in Godno, in Little Russia, in the year 66, and of course there are the Anderson murders in North Carolina, but this case possesses some features which are entirely its own. Even now we have no clear case against this very wily man. <laughs> he's so excited. And there, huh. there's a whole big thing where he like... He doesn't want to arrest him. Watson's like, why don't we just arrest the person responsible for this? And Holmes is like, no, we don't have it. We haven't solved it yet. We can't do that. <laughs> he would totally beat us. We got. We got to get him. Um, <laughs> I will say that it does kind of turn on some random details that that come out of nowhere in a way. Um, like things that had not been talked about before, like Holmes sees them for the first time and all of a sudden they're filled with meaning. Um, I guess Watson never would have seen them in the first place. I don't know. But okay. that's the only thing I would hold against it. But yeah, I, I would yeah. like to see uh, Moriarty and see maybe read a story where Watson has more concern for Holmes' well-being, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, you only get... a. You get a little taste of kind of Holmes the eccentric in this book where, like, Watson leaves Holmes for, like, half a day to think about the case. And when he comes back, the apartment is filled with tobacco and Holmes is like, I drank two pots of coffee. Let me tell you what's going on. <laughs> uh, so I'd, I'd be interested to see some more details on, on that version of Holmes because this one is just this kind of, like, almost Doctor Who-like character who just comes in when it's convenient to solve things. Uh, it's not really his story, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, yeah. But cool. all things all things considered, a pretty, pretty fun book. Pretty good. Um, if you have read other books in the Sherlock Holmes series and would like to tell us about it, uh, we have an email address you can reach us at. That's overduepod at gmail.com. Um, you can also tweet at us at twitter.com slash overduepod. And we have a Facebook page that we um, we're trying to keep a little more updated with stuff these days. So uh, that's facebook.com slash overdue pod. And if you're tired of social media, you can head straight to overduepodcast.com where you can find all of our back episodes as well as links to Amazon copies uh, or copies of the book on Amazon. Uh, which if you picked them up because you wanted to read along or you heard us talk about something that you want to go back and read... That would be great. It's a way to support us and kind of defray some of the hosting costs of the show. You can also find links to our iTunes page through our website, which would allow you to rate and review us, which we'd greatly appreciate. 
You can also subscribe to us there uh, if you need to put us like in your phone or something like that. So you yeah, if you're not if you're not in the in the Apple ecosystem, yeah. we just have a straight up RSS feed that you can use to to pull the podcast down if you're not into iTunes or whatever. Um, we also have a little web player that you can use to just play it right in your web browser or you can download the MP3 or whatever it is that you want to do. Or if you want to like call me and I'll just like yell about a book at you. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I don't have the number on there. You'd have to like reach out and we can talk about yeah, it. You guys can set something yeah, up. Just I think, if, if drop me a line, overduepod at gmail.com. Uh, <laughs> you can also see... If we are uh, diligent about it, you can see what we are reading next. Andrew, do you know what you're reading next? Um, I am going to be reading Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger. I understand that it's a novel in which uh, Fran Drescher and Zoe Deschanel solve mysteries together. That's not true. (laughs) Surprise. I couldn't think of anything to say other than that's not true. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Yes, try to be happy. (laughs) 